0: You don't realize how an an organized academic environment of research, teaching, extension work helps ensure food for our population. And a hungry population is a rebellious population.
1: A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. All right, welcome to this episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and our guest today is Dr. Carl Hoppe from North Dakota State University. He earned his bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees at South Dakota State University and is a livestock systems specialist at North Dakota State, working at the Carrington Research Extension Center. Carl has been with the university since 1990 and has earned multiple national honors for his Extension efforts, including most recently being named to the National Association of County Agricultural Agents Hall of Fame in 2022. Carl provides nutritional and management education for beef cow-calf and feedlot sectors as Extension Livestock Systems Specialist. For over 28 years, he has conducted cattle feeding projects where cow-calf producers experience custom feeding, carcass data, and profitability of feeding cattle. He's worked with producers to develop a cattle finance cooperative, cattle feeding partnerships, and cattle slaughter and processing businesses. Working with agents, producers, and youth, Dr. Hoppy provides a well-balanced extension program in livestock production. So welcome, Carl. Thank you. All right. So we were chatting in our pre-show and realized that uh, we were kind of neighbors maybe at one point. So you're originally from Northwest Iowa, which is the same part of the world that I'm from. And uh, we were talking about your journey, about how you ended up getting multiple degrees at South Dakota State. So do you want to uh, start with us there and give us a little bit of your background that kind of uh, led you via South Dakota and eventually resulted in North Dakota?
0: Well, How do I start out? Uh, Dad was a farmer for over 50 years, and my grandfathers were both farmers uh, before then. And mom's 102 years old, still 101 years old, living out on the farm by herself yet back home in Iowa. And uh, of course, I've always enjoyed the issue of farming, thought we should go off to college because our family believes in that. And uh, I went to South Dakota State University, studied animal science and got out of there as quick as I could, came home, uh, worked in the feed industry for a couple of years, as, excuse me, for a few months as a salesperson. And I had applied to grad school with one person at one location at South Dakota State University. And uh, that embarked my graduate career where I was... Uh, a sheep unit manager for seven years, working full-time for the university. And so, consequently, I got my bachelor's degree in, in reproductive physiology and sheep and sheep production. And my PhD was then I switched over to feedlot nutrition with Robbie Pritchard and, uh, finished my doctorate there. And then after I finished my doctorate, I, uh, looked for opportunities and was a sheep extension specialist at North Dakota State University here at the Carrington Research Extension Center for two years. And, uh, at that point, that grant funded uh, position turned over to state-funded, and then I started doing cow-calf work as well as feedlot work in North Dakota. And at that time, we wanted to see more cattle being fed in North Dakota. And we kind of smiled because back then it was like, you can't feed cattle to finish in North Dakota. It's too cold. That was the paradigm that was existed. And we did projects to prove that, no, that's not the case. We can do it up here. People don't really want to do it up here. That's a different story. Um, but our feed costs are cheaper um, just because of our location. Feeding cattle in the winter is is a wonderful opportunity because you just deal with snow, but no mud because it freezes up. We usually traditionally just say it's the poor man's concrete, frozen ground, and it freezes up in November and stays that way until March.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit. So, what we're, So first of all, on your background, right? So it's a pretty fascinating combination of the sheep reproduction aspect and then going to working with Robbie to do the feedlot nutrition side. Um, but a pretty pretty cool combination for somebody destined for extension, right? Where you guys have to be a jack of all, of all trades, right? So tell me a little bit more about how you think that background set you up for success kind of in your position.
0: Well, reproduction is really important in cow-calf herd or sheep production. And knowing the physiology behind that certainly makes you aware of how reproduction is. It's It's amazing. It can be accomplished and we have rebreeding rates that occur every year that are quite high in our cow herd and our sheep flocks. Um, you know, not everybody's always that lucky to have things be bred up that easily, but that's the way our livestock species are. Um, but I realized um, we turn the bulls in and the rams in with the livestock once a year, right? Mm-hmm. Because of gestational length, the way things work, yep. but we eat every day. So I looked where the opportunities are and feedlot nutrition was a real real deal. Um, so back when I got my degrees at South Dakota State, you got to realize a lot of World War II veterans uh, were the professors at that time. And just when I was in grad school, most of those guys were retiring. They had okay. crashed that age. So we brought in a whole new crew of, of younger researchers and professors, of which Pritchard was one of them. So consequently, I got my uh, bachelor's degree into the old faculty and my doctorate under the new faculty. A lot of people like to look at changing your locations for different degrees just for a breadth of knowledge and information. But when you're working full time, um that doesn't always work itself out. So I really thought the opportunity to work in nutrition certainly helped. And of course, when I as a livestock extension specialist, we talk about feeding every day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know when we talk about the cost of cattle production, we talk about, you know, sixty to sixty five percent of those costs being associated with nutrition. And obviously, it's really important to make sure we get a live calf on the ground every year. But I like the analogy of we breed once or twice a year if we haven't done everything great, and we have to feed every day. So that's pretty interesting. Um, I'm curious about uh, this concept of trying to have having a full time job and being in grad school at the same time. Right? Um, I definitely was a full time graduate student, and that was a lot of work just by itself. I sometimes get advisees who will ask the question of, well, I'll just go work for a while and then I'll come back to grad school or I'll try to do it concurrently. So tell us a little bit about the challenges and opportunities that come with having a full-time job while trying to get your graduate degree.
0: Well, working for a university is, uh, is helpful when you're trying to, go to a grad, get an advanced degree because there's tuition perks that come into place. So it's one way to help afford your college tuition or going to school Um, by having a full-time job usually they allow one credit one class per semester tuition free there's still fees and other things that you have to pay but it's one way to help um, pay for the cost of graduate school Uh, so the challenge though is that one class per semester it takes quite a few years to work through all that well only taking three or four um, depending upon what what's going on Um, I did that for quite a few years that's why it stretches itself out but I realized when I got to, be to do my uh, research for my Ph.D., I had to quit a full-time job and just focus on that. And then I have to remind myself what I thought would happen in one year took three years to do. I was in the laboratory doing heptafluoroisobutyl derivatives of plasma amino acids. Yeah. And that was a technique using a gas chromatograph. And that was a technique nobody has really done. So it took a lot of time and uh, it was very educational, appreciate it. It probably stimulated my career of doing extension work and teaching work, and I haven't really walked into a lab since. <laughs> I certainly am well-versed in a lab, and um, but I enjoy the live animals and the producers that, that raise live animals. So the interaction with the public and the people, um, I find that to be stimulating.
1: I think that's such an important part of the role that extension folks play in our three-legged stool of the land-grant system, right? So I have two of those legs with research and teaching appointments, and we might do some outreach presentations. But I love seeing our work get utilized by producers, right? And so having somebody who can sort of translate the magic that happened in the lab into something that actually becomes magic that happens on the farm or in the feedlot, that's amazing, right? That's why we do that work. And that's, would you agree that you think you have a better appreciation for the first half of that equation? Because you did that work in the lab, and you understand how, you know, like a GC is more art than science, we like to say when we're training students on it, um, to then be able to take that and try to kind of simplify it and help producers understand what to do with that information.
0: The problem is, is the time lag. Oh, totally. The of time it takes from that type of uh, uh, laboratory research, to application, and of course, producers work the speed of light. Uh, things happen really fast, and they'll change just an in information or perception. Um, and so, to having a a, a list of things that it, that you can share with producers, um, it takes a, a large resource base to provide that tool. And then really the other thing I like to always point out, actually, extension works actually pretty hard because there's a lot of producers that are doing it right now, and there's a lot of things they're seeing and doing. But we don't have any research to prove they've been doing it right. But a lot of things are happening already that we just that deserve to have investigation to find out if this is truly the case.
1: Oh, absolutely. I can think of a couple of major, you know, milestones in my research project. So I, I largely study like mineral nutrition And, you know, hearing some of these anecdotal stories where folks were like, you know, when I feed a beta agonist, I'm also feeding more zinc and I feel like I'm getting more performance out of that. Or I can see that my closeouts are changing in a positive way, but we don't really know why. You know, cue 10 years of research in the Hansen lab to figure out the mechanisms by which that's happening and then help others understand how to implement zinc nutrition differently in their programs. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, though, because you're totally right on the time lag. Right. That's one of our biggest challenges along with funding. As a researcher, are there any things that we could do to try to shorten that lag or, you know, speed up the the time from when we start to er- learn our findings and get that into application?
0: Well, it's really hard because part of your responsibility is to do, is to teach and educate and train the next level of researchers through grad students. Right. Okay. So that just takes time. If we just wanted to focus on research, then we could look at the federal government or the not doing teaching uh, but the IRS situations where they're just punching out publications. Okay, that that's part of it. Um, my view, though, is I think we need to have a combination-type approach, and I think some of our grant programs are coming out there where they, especially happens in our sustainable research programs, where it requires producer involvement in the grant proposal. And if producer involvement isn't there, um, it's usually not funded. So it's forced to go ahead and have people, uh, researchers, uh, do, yeah, you know, a wide array of approach at the first. At, at first,
1: yeah. yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more? So you're talking about the SARE program there. And I know from your bio that you've had some success as a part of that program. Can you tell us a little bit about SARE and expand more a little bit more about, about this idea of how they get producers involved in research?
0: Uh, SARE stands for a USDA program called Sustainable Ag Research and Education. Uh, it's been around for over 30 years. Originally started out as a lease program, low-input sustainable agriculture. But it's not necessarily just organic agriculture. That's not the case. Sustainable really focuses on the three legs of sustainability, which is um, environment, okay? um, profitability, and social effects societal effects so how do we keep people in our community employed with uh, not destroying our environment that's a nice quick way to say that but um they have always started with their program to have producer involvement even through their advisory committee or administrative council is what it's referred to and through that they've also decided we don't need to have a bunch of people out here doing work we need to create funding opportunities for people to do work. And so they've created lots of different grant funding programs. The one that researchers are familiar with would be their research and education grants. But there's actually farmer and rancher grants, partnership grants, grad student grants, youth educator grants, and there's even one called professional development grants. Now, it's divided up into four regions, and each region's got their own uh, group of grant opportunities there. But these grants are focused on people making a difference in sustainable agriculture. And it's there's a variety of ways to look at it, all the way from cow-calf production to perennial grain crops to apiaries, bees, to uh, soil health. And uh, soil health has gotten a lot of coverage over the past few years. Of course, trying to keep our soils in better condition and not using um, yeah, I just continue on and on with that whole thing. I'm an animal scientist, not a soils person. So we'll just back away from that and say the SARE program is focused to work with producers. And and so it's supposed to be ground-driven rather than top-down-driven. And what I really like about the SARE program is that if you look under Google SARE and look under the projects they've had, there's a whole array of different viewpoints of, uh, of projects that have been over the past 30 years, and it's all on the Internet. Available for people to look through.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's a program that not everybody is as aware of, and I appreciate you also mentioning like the grad student grants in addition to the researcher grants, the farmer and rancher opportunities. So it is such a cool way to do exactly what you said, where if somebody's like, "Man, I've been doing this, and I think that this is the way to do it," but we don't really have the data yet to be able to, you know, preach that to others. It's a cool way to to understand that. So, and and I think it can be. So circling back to something we were chatting about earlier with funding, one of the biggest challenges with funding work that can be applied tomorrow is that we don't really have great funding mechanisms for those things, right? So even some of our state checkoff, like here in Iowa, we have an additional 50 cents per head checkoff. Um, and they, you know, try to do a good job with doing research grant applications, but they're not huge grants and they're, you know, they can only fund so much, right? There's a limited pool. So how do you fund the cover crop research and the you know maintenance energy requirements due to bedding and you know some of these other things right that are we could use that data tomorrow in the in the field
0: right and that's the opportunity with our SARE grants if they've got producer involvement um of course they have to be fed uh reviewed I should say there's yeah, and and there's limited funds there too there's way more applications uh, just for the research and education, there could be like 180 applications in the north central region, of which like 25 or 30 are actually re- allowed into full proposals, and then only seven or eight actually get funded. So there's a huge competition for those funds, which actually drives up the quality of the research that's being done. So it's, it's excellent to have that. Uh, now, I got to point out that I'm a Sierra state coordinator. Okay. So I write a professional development grant to help educate our county extension agents. We're a county agent-based system in North Dakota, so I have professional development funds that I utilize to help uh, educate or train uh, so they can uh, teach their producers a different view of, of, of sustainable egg. Now, I shouldn't say a different view. It's just to make them more of awareness. We have organic producers in North Dakota. We have commercial producers in North Dakota. Commercials by far outnumber organic producers, but it's a segment. If you look at uh statistics you'll say organics are the fastest growing segment well, it's still a very small segment but it's 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 there it can't be ignored it's an opportunity people have to to uh um buy food for their lifestyle whatever the case is but uh sustainable ag is it is provides continuing education above and beyond our just normal um discipline areas that we tend to focus on so it's it's Ah, uh, there's a word I want to use, and I can't think of what it is right now. It's uh, um, um, hmm. looking at the bigger picture. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah, more holistic. Yeah, that's part of the word. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll I'll think of it eventually. Okay, but okay. I almost want to say regenerative, but that's a nice buzzword. So
1: yeah, yeah, right. Maybe we don't want that one. Yeah, well, that's I don't. Work. Yeah, regenerative is fine as long as we don't think you're going to live on forty acres and a mule, right? <laughs>
0: And that's, yeah. And then the the real problem that I see is we've got people that say, well, my my food is healthier than your food. Right. Which, which if that's true, that's good. But in reality, what they kind of said is your food's not safe to eat. And that's not true.
1: Yes, I I totally agree. Yeah, the, the niche markets are great. It's the part where we are busy checking each other under the bus to make our own market look better that's not okay, right? That, that I mean, we've talked in this podcast before with prior guests how our biggest strength and our biggest weakness in the beef industry is the same thing, and that is our independence. So we are more resilient to certain things like, you know, the high path avian influenza challenges and stuff like that. We're going to be more resilient to disease because we're so dispersed. But we can't speak with one voice or we can't seem to be able to speak with one voice, which makes it hard to get resources. It's hard to get attention. It's hard to educate consumers. So that's a challenge.
0: Oh, it is. It is. Well, now now I got to poke a little fun and say, so really Iowa only has a 50% additional increase for their checkoff funds. North Dakota went to a
1: dollar. Did you? Did you? (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll be honest. It was, it was a battle. It was a battle because there was a lot of concern from the admin side you know which so it's separate from Iowa state right it's it's the the Iowa Cattlemen's and then the Iowa Beef Industry Council oh, yeah. um and and there was such an a perception from that administration that if they couldn't show producers the next day that they had done something valuable with that extra 50 cents that they were just going to get all this you know blowback and i was like people these are smart individuals they recognize the value of research of consumer education of things like that so you know, explain to them what you're going to do with their money, and then come back and be really good every year about saying, this is what we did with it. Here's where you find the resources that we developed.
0: I know. (laughs) But when you deal with other people's pocketbooks, it's always a little bit tough.
1: I know. Okay. So I want to talk about your kind of unique... um, So tell us more about your center at Carrington. I'll let you give our proper title and everything. Um, Because it's it's a unique place in terms of the way that you're funded, but then also kind of the scientist's and extension folks that you have brought there together. Not that the extension folks aren't scientists, but research and extension together.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, So in North Dakota, we have several off-station facilities called research extension centers. They start off as research stations. uh, Where I'm at used to be called the irrigation station because it started off as irrigation. And then they realized that we need to include livestock. So we've actually had a dry lot cow-calf herd here for uh 30 to 40 years and yeah so the question is, is if you ever lose your pastures and the uh, lease ran or it's flooded out or you have a drought what do you do well we've been doing research on dry lot calf production for decades so not a big deal it's just your feed costs are twice the price of what grass is in north dakota now in iowa i don't know what your feed costs are compared to grass but in north dakota our grass is still a price low enough that it still works so anyway back to the research extension centers uh I'm at the Carrington Research Extension Center. As it implies, it's a center that has uh research people as well as extension staff here. Um it's a wide base uh facility that probably has like twelve different professionals here, uh plus forty different staff that work here at the center. Uh it's just not a small outreach location from the university. It truly is equivalent to a department on campus. Okay, so we have researchers here. I'm the animal scientist when it comes to the extension livestock uh, production, but we have an animal scientist here that does the research. Um, we have a feedlot here as well as a cow calf herd here. We have agronomists here from extension, and we have a uh, uh, our PhD research um, agronomist as well, as well as a soil scientist, as well as a uh, plant pathologist. We actually have a forestry person here at the center, farm business management person as well. Um, we have a, a a seed stocks program here at the center, and that's where it backs up. Um, our research extension center is line-item funded through our legislature. The monies don't go to main campus that, and then come to here. The monies take specifically for the center. In North Dakota, we're actually allowed to uh, use the funds that are generated off the farm for for uh, the budget for running the farm. Um, so uh, consequently, I said we're a foundation se- seed sales location. We take foundation seed, grow it up and then uh, provide that out to our growers. So we're a source of seed income. Uh, we have a herd. We raise money off of selling calves. All that can be funneled back into our center. And if you ever Google North Dakota and look at our centers, you'll see that we are an expansive operation. It's just not very small. We, um, Like I say, 40 people work here, so it's quite a bit. Um, because it's line item funded, I used to always think that, Uh, we have research extension centers competing for the same, for funds against each other. And then I realized over the years, it's just like a basketball team. When one team is good, it forces the other team to be better, which makes the other team be even better. So this little, you might say, funding competition between the centers, uh, would be at odds with each other. Actually, it's not. It has driven our system to be quite, uh, dynamic and, uh, Invaluable here in North Dakota. I like to bring this point up because when you go to other states and find out where they use they they used to or have a research extension center view, but it's not funded the way it is in North Dakota, and they haven't grown. Usually, they're in the situation that we don't have enough money to keep running, and um, yeah, they usually end up downsizing, getting smaller, getting relieved of their duties. Well, in North Dakota, we've actually grown.
1: Wow. Oh, so there's so many good things in there, Carl, I want to kind of come back to. You. Um, so, I, I, well, it's almost kind of fascinating that you're actually able to keep your money from your farm to put back into things, right? There's a lot of places where some of these different farms that go into a, a revolving fund that, you know, oftentimes the, the people at that station don't actually have any control of. So that's such a nice funding model. Um I, I love the breadth of disciplines that you talked about there with forestry and business folks and, you know, all across the ag spectrum. And that is such a cool, I imagine this is a really cool training opportunity for graduate students. So I know at least a few graduate students who have done some of their uh, graduate work there at Carrington. Um, but can you tell us anything about some of the graduate education that those students get an opportunity to be a part of getting to work at that station?
0: Well, they're always uh, allowed to come out here, uh, but I, I, you know, we're two hours away from campus. And so when you're going to classes and uh, being out at the center at the same time, it's always kind of a challenge. Um, so we have had some interaction over the past. Uh, we have a sister station down at the Central Grasslands Research Extension Center. That's got a 500 head cow herd, and it's mostly focused on range work. So the range people, of course, that the yeah, there's a lot of grad student involvement at that particular location. I can't speak for the agronomy side, um, but again, grad students, it's the opportunity. They're they're doing research, right? So they need plots and locations to do research at. It, we certainly help them out here.
1: I'm curious. You've probably had the opportunity. You know, you've been very successful in your career, and you've been there for a lot of years. You migrated from Iowa to South Dakota to North Dakota. Um, what made you decide to stay in North Dakota? What made you be a lifer up there?
0: <laughs> Do I dare share my example again? <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I always remember this colleague that we have here at the center when I first started. Very good agronomist. And after about six years, he left and moved to Iowa, actually. And uh, just decided they wanted to live or they wanted to live and find employment there rather than find employment in the area that they want to work at and then live in that region. And that's basically what I did. I found employment that I enjoy and uh, that. But I realized early on that when I bring up that person's name and his efforts, um, nowadays people don't even know who I'm talking about. We used to have an aquaculture facility here at the center, Indoor Aquaculture. We raised tilapia. He was actually the person who uh, uh, was the researcher involved in, in getting that up and going. But again, times, and my point here is that if you don't stay with it for quite a while, you don't get you don't make a difference. You got to stay in the community, stay in the location, work with your populace and that'll make a difference over time.
1: Yeah, so what, I mean what you're really talking about is how we make impact in our careers, right? And that is for you know when we talk to graduate students and things like that and they say, "Well, should I go into industry or should I go into academia and You know, there's not the the benefits side on academia is basically the benefits and it's sure not the salary, right? We could get paid a lot more in industry, but we have, you know, we get to be a a little more in control of our own destiny and a few things. But the ability to know that you can be someplace for a long time can kind of build your resource base, can, you know, be that person that somebody's going to pick up the phone and say, I got a question. I'm going to call Carl. He's going to have an answer to this or he's going to know somebody who's going to have the answer to this. You know, that's a pretty special legacy to leave behind for a career. It takes a long, you know, kids,
0: grade school kids learn in days or hours. When you're in middle school, you learn in semesters. When you're in high school, you learn by weeks because of tests. In college, same thing, a little bit longer. But when you get to be an adult, you matter change in years. Not by hours, weeks, or days or semesters, it's years, and it might take a decade before you'll make a production change in somebody's business, because it's really hard. It's not only hard, but scary to just make an overnight change of a of million dollars investment or something like that. And once you do it, you're kind of stuck in with it. So those type of decisions and changes take a long time to happen. Um, and then there's policy things that come along, too. So we've seen an, a real growth in feed, permitted feed yards in North Dakota over the past 20 years. Part of that's because of EPA's $319 and EQIP dollars that have helped funded these feed yards to be built in North Dakota. But I'd like to say university support in cattle feeding has played a decision role making or a role in decision making for producers in deciding whether we should do that or not. Part of it's for the environment, but the other part of it's business plan.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true. When the university of a particular state decides to put the resources in the area that fits with the resource base that the state has and the interest, magic can really happen, right? You can align those things and you can expand and grow an industry very, very quickly. Um, Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so my next question related to this was... um, I love this idea that you've been doing dry-lotted cow work before doing dry-lotted cow work was sexy, right? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's when corn prices hit $8, all of a sudden there was, you know, some, some different opportunities there. Um, and places like Nebraska and Iowa have very high pasture rental rates, so there's a lot of interest in feeding cows in confinement. Um, but you said you've been doing that for 30 to 40 years, so I thought I'd ask this question. From your decades at Carrington... What would you say are a couple of the things that you're most proud of from the, the, the new ideas that were generated and maybe that implementation into your industry there in North Dakota?
0: Well, I think the first one that shows up would be our, our change in paradigm. Um, two, two of them. One, we can't feed cattle in North Dakota because it's too cold. Another one is we can't feed cattle in North Dakota because it's not profitable. Those are two big issues. I remember having a banker call me and said, ah, so-and-so went bankrupt feeding cattle. We can't do that in North Dakota. They weren't going to support it. Of course, our banking industry is very important when it comes to feeding cattle because cattle require a lot of capital or a lot of cash. Great economic development opportunities for the cattle production just because the dollars are involved. Um, but the other thing is the cold weather in North Dakota. I always smile at that. Yeah, it's cold up here. We snowed in November and it'll probably melt in maybe April, but we don't deal with mud all winter long. Poor man's frozen con for poor man's concrete is frozen ground, and we have a lot of it. Of course, when you get blizzard and snow, it builds up. We might have to get a track hoe in to move the snow out of the backside of the feed bunks. The cattle aren't eating on their knees out of the feed bunk, but that's just part of dealing with snow in North Dakota. But the cold weather uh, now realize don't bring Tennessee cattle up to North Dakota when it's December, that probably ain't going to turn out to be very good, but North Dakota calves are acclimated to this weather, and we do have feed resources. When I moved here 30 years ago, it was kind of different. Sunflower, wheat, barley, wow, we had those types of crops being raised up here. Now in our region, uh, corn and soybeans, if it's not that, well, we do raise some wheat just because of Grandpa used to raise it. It's kind of, you know, got to live the old days once Sentimental. a while. Yeah. And uh, right, uh, there is some barley being produced, but that's really turned over to the malting contracts. So feed barley is basically non-existent, unless it didn't meet malt specifications. So you get up into Canada, they talk about using barley as a grain. You get into North Dakota, not so much anymore, just because we don't raise it. Canola is a big crop in North Dakota. Um, Canola meal is definitely another protein source, but corn and soybeans, when you drive the countryside, that's what you see the most of. We've turned into Iowa.
1: I have to say that being in Iowa where we've, I bet in the last three weeks alone, we've had 50 degree days and we've had minus 20 degree days. And we've had, well, just last week we had an inch of rain. And then four days later, we had six inches of snow. So this this frozen ground that you speak of, (laughs) this is not something we have seen very consistently lately. Um, And it's, I, I hear you, it is a challenge. People don't realize, the energy costs that cattle have to expend to move through mud, that mud can be as energetically inefficient for an animal as heat or cold. So that's pretty fascinating. Okay, so besides your poor man's concrete that you have, what are some of the other adaptations or things that you've worked with producers to understand how to maintain cattle comfort and performance in six-plus months of pretty cold winter?
0: Well, now I'll lead to some of the research my Former colleague here. He's retired now. Vern Anderson did bedding research here at the center, and one of his uh, one of the one of the following researchers, Brian Neville, did some research on it too on bedding. And uh, yeah, it shows that if you bed livestock, it takes like five pounds of straw per cow per per animal per day to uh, to create a nice nest or, or bedding for them to lay on. That certainly improves their their rate of gain, their feed efficiency, and their marbling scores. So bedding does make a difference. You know, large feed yards, wow, you're going to use bedding. That's a huge expense. Not only that, you got to haul the manure out as well. Now you got to find the ground to haul the manure out. Of, and there's a lot of volume to it. So I did forget, I, I, we do have a manure management specialist here at the center as well. Or a, uh, yeah, uh, and she's worked on composting and done those things over the years as well. And so that's part of it.
1: One of the biggest values of having places like Carrington, you know, you made this comment that you're you're equivalent to a department on campus, right, and with the staff number and the breadth of things and stuff, but you are one of the rare unicorns left that can still study systems in a single location. There's so many places that, you know, maybe don't have somebody who does the soil side or don't have somebody who can do the economics or don't have somebody who can do you know the agronomy side or or whatever or water quality, whatever it is, and that systems that's we like to think about very specific research questions, but often what we need to be putting them in is in context of the whole system, right like how is this like I'm sure you could talk to us for an hour just about how that system question has shifted over your thirty year career right from even from your comment about going from having the availability of barley to now being more of a corn and soybean based system right like that's that's as simple as a diet, but it's also the residue that's on the field that's now a grazing opportunity or a bedding opportunity. So totally different just from, you know, decades worth of change.
0: So we've looked at cover crops to try and improve soil health and uh, utilizing cattle to do that. We've got research projects here that that are focusing on that. Um, That's where I like to say, our, our last hire is an animal scientist actually has a PhD in range management. And the whole reason there, in my mind, is to stimulate the system's view of looking at research rather than our reductionistic view that we normally do as a scientist, especially an animal scientist, especially a ruminant nutritionist, animal scientist. You know, we keep making all, all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm one of them. I, not know. Not I know. know. I don't know. You <laughs> know, it's it's different <laughs> ways of looking at thing, and it's just, yeah, producers, it's a system. I, raise a, I have a cow herd and a sheep flock as well that I take care of after hours. And, um, yeah, it makes you, makes you acutely aware of where the dollars and cents are flowing, where you can get the mouse bang out of the back, uh, what you do. I'm one of those people that say, for me, corn size is the cheapest feed I can produce. Of course, on the reverse side, if I was into just crop farming, I would say, why do we have cattle? Because the corn price is that good, I could work four days out of the year rather than 365 and we move on. So that's a challenge we have in our industry is people that are willing to take care of animals. And and I find out in our cow-calf herds, the people that are willing to take care of animals, have, our veterinarian, our extension veterinarian kind of puts it this way and says, there's a calling. We enjoy taking care of animals. That's just part of what we do. And we don't think of the easy life we could have if we didn't take care of animals. That's just part of what we need to do. But we're losing that. So, and part of what I say is that is that even our children in Carrington, North Dakota that come out to our Research Extension Center to see what's going on, you know, a tour. Our grade school kids come out for a tour and we visit with them and I ask the simple questions, how many of you guys live on a farm? One time, nobody raised their hands. The next time, then I ask, so how many of your grandparents live on a farm? Then half the class raised their hands. Even rural North Dakota, we have people that are just removed away from agriculture. Just think of our big cities where they truly believe that milk comes out of the grocery store. Uh, it's, it's we got a challenge going on here. That's that's what I see.
1: I totally agree. And like my grandparents had a farm. My parents, my parents both came from farms, two different farms. My dad's parents' farm went bankrupt uh, when he was young. And so they moved to town. So I always kind of knew them as the in-town grandparents. And then my mom's parents raised uh, beef cattle and that's how I got the beef bug, right? Um we were at Thanksgiving dinner out there one day and I looked out the window and I said to my grandpa I think I was about 10 and I was like why don't we do anything with those cows and you know the next year I had my first like bucket calf in 4H and then eventually steers and whatever but I did I lived in town right I lived in a small town and had a lot of farm kids that went to school with us but I I wasn't raised on a farm and yet here I live on acreage I raise cows every day right so I also have my after hours cow herd um but you're right. That is, that is an increasing rarity. Uh, our animal science department at Iowa State is one of the largest in the country, almost 1,100 students. And we increasingly have less than a third of those that come from even a rural background. And rural doesn't necessarily mean that they came from a farm. So, so you're right. How are we going to find the individual who's going to feed cows during the blizzard because it needs to be done and because we need to have a quality protein for a, a growing world?
0: That's why we need to have resources available for people to learn more about what they're getting involved with. Schools and opportunities, 4-H and youth, it all helps.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So tours like you were talking about, that's a great example. Um, So tell us about some of the other youth activities that you've been involved with over the years that, you know, are maybe working with kids who are from a farm, but also with the education of students of where their food comes from.
0: Uh, We, okay. Uh, I'm involved because we have a, 4 H program in North Dakota. Of course, they need people to come and judge their livestock shows. So I do a little bit of that. But I, I don't, when it turns into a competition, I really try to stay away from that. I'd rather spend the time with the younger people that don't have very many to the smaller fairs or achievement days that don't have very many people and spend the time with the kids, letting them uh, feel good about their project and understand what they took care of. Because that's kind of a stressful day for them to be involved with. But uh, no, my, my real job is working with adults. So that's, that's a very competitive thing. We spend a little bit of time with youth, but most of my time is spent with adults.
1: So tell us about your feedlot school, because you mentioned that that was something that you hosted recently. Is that an annual event that you guys do up there?
0: Yeah, it's an annual event we've been doing for 28 years. <laughs> so I smile and say some of our new hires, we've been having this perpetual school go on longer than they've been alive. So, yeah. wow, really? And I've been one of the teachers. But anyway, 28 years, we've been doing a feedlot of school. Why did we start the school? Because it's like, well, we have cow-calf producers, and some of them might have fed some of their cattle after weaning for a short period of time before they got rid of them. Um, why don't we feed them longer? And, of course, finishing is part of the opportunity, but backgrounding is a huge opportunity in North Dakota. And we decided we should probably provide some science and knowledge based on cattle feeding. So we provided a two-day school. Thought about having a longer school, but people have a hard time getting away from home in the first place. So we do a two-day fairly intense. We start at 9 o'clock in the morning, go until 9 o'clock at night. The next morning we start at the feed yard looking at feed bunks at 8 in the morning, and we finish by 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon visiting a large feed yard besides. But we spend a lot of in-classroom time uh, talking about cattle feeding. And, uh, well, we have a waiting list for next year. This year's waiting list filled up the school before we even announced the school.
1: Wow. So how many, how many head do you enroll each time?
0: Uh, we limit it to 25 operations, which might mean 25, because a lot of husband and wives show up or partners or father-son. Uh, this year, we actually had one person show up that had been here two years earlier, bringing somebody else
1: new with them. Kind of like, really? You didn't learn it all the first time? I mean, that's actually a pretty, that's a cool approach. I like that. Like um, we do a feedlot short course at Iowa State and uh, my grad students help out with it sometimes. And I think it's four days and, um, but they're limited to like one person. So they might send multiple people from an operation, but I really like your approach because that's, that's so true, right? Oftentimes when you have a spousal pair. One person does a different aspect of the business than the other one does, and they could be really complementary. So that's a that's a cool approach. I like that. And what we
0: now this is a beginning feedlot school, but so some of it you might say, "Well, I already know how to feed cattle." Well, you do. You're here to try to pick up an idea or two or something different that you uh, weren't trained in. It. You're just doing it because this is the way it's always been done, but you may not understand why you did it. Okay. The other thing that we try to do is make sure people know who the, who the speakers are. Because we have a all array of extension staff that come up. I don't teach the whole school, just myself. I have segments that I teach, and we have a lot of different people show up. and now they are introduced to who these people are. And when you're a farmer, you're going to have a question. And now you know the resource person to reach out to. And we're available in North Dakota.
1: Nice, nice. And so this, uh, obviously, hard to get onto because you have a waiting list. But if somebody wants to learn more about it, where would they go? Maybe on the web to find out more information about it.
0: Uh, just Google NDSU Feedlot School, and I'm sure you're going to find it. Or you come to our Carrington Research Extension Center and uh, look for our our uh, Center Points newsletter that we put out every week, and that would include a a reminder of Feedlot School. I uh, usually put that in there every year as well.
1: Excellent. Okay, well, we're kind of nearing our time here, but is there anything else, Carl, that you wanted to make sure we got to talk about today before we go to our final questions?
0: <laughs> the final questions. The final questions. Uh, uh, I don't know. I could visit with you all day. <laughs> I do find it interesting that a person from Iowa, that we're both from the same neighborhood in Iowa, and I didn't yeah. realize that until today. Not only that, to realize, well, yeah, Powell, yeah, I know Powell's. So they used to be great supporters of the Foster, uh, excuse me, the Woodbury County Fair. I think your grandfather was on the fair board for decades he was My uncle, he was on was on the horse was on the fair board too for the horse superintendent for decades as well so it's like yeah it's a small but matter of fact uh, mom usually spins her wool over the county fair when she was 100 years old she was you know part of it. but those influences make it different in our lives and the paths that we take i liked animal agriculture and i ended up going this direction Mom's a teacher, dad was a farmer, so what do I end up doing? Teaching farming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So and kind of where it ends up at. So if you're looking at a career, those different careers, and there's opportunities, and just be willing to look at what's going
1: on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, Grandpa was definitely the, on the fair board, and he would sell the wood chips, so the bedding, right, for, so the 4-H kids would come up with their wheelbarrow and buy a couple of bags of wood chips or something like that. And so as the grandkids, we always had a a time where we would sit in there, right? So grandpa could go to lunch or something like that. Or you just sit in there in a bag of wood chips and shoot the breeze with grandpa for hours, (laughs) which was great. (laughs) It is time to our famous three. Okay. So let's do our famous three questions here. So our first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? Well, I'd be remiss
0: if I didn't say the beef nutrient requirements by the NRC. That's, that, that's, you know, that's, that's my, oh, I'll, yeah, that's my Bible. Okay, we'll move on from there. But we do have another publication I use all the time, and that's our Alternative Feedstuffs extension brochure, AS-1182. So if you Google NDSU AS-1182, you'll come up with with our Alternative Feed Resources in North Dakota. And I've been putting out a feed product. We produce a lot of, Byproduct feeds in North Dakota from processing. I didn't realize how much we actually... Other states don't have the breadth of what we produce in North Dakota. We actually, yeah, all the way from... Uh, at first, to started out as wheat mills. We have the largest wheat milling facility in the world in one location. And it's actually owned by the state of North Dakota. It's called our state mill and elevator. North Dakota is unique in its perspective because we have two state-owned entities. One is the state mill. The other one's our own bank, the Bank of North Dakota. A banker's bank so when you get a loan state bank of bank north dakota might end up buying that note that loan uh, from the local bank and owning a part of it yeah we have our own bank interesting, interesting. right it Just is interesting to run our government there's another thing that's unique about north dakota our legislature meets once every two years so we're a state agency we have a budget for two years wow not every year every two years it's great. Policies put in place for two years. Budgets are put in place for two years. You can move forward with things like that. If they need to meet more often, there certainly can be a special uh, legislative session. Um, but even our legislatures, I believe, are limited to 75 days that they can actually do business. They can't spend all winter doing. They, there's a deadline to what they have to get done. So we have a unique policy difference. And I thought South Dakota and North Dakota, they share the same name, right? So they're basically the same. Oh, all contrary. Any different. Like... <laughs> Um, but yeah, and the other thing I need to point out is North Dakota is now one of, uh, we're either the second or third, uh, largest oil producers in the United States.
1: <laughs> right. Which <laughs> is definitely years ago,
0: but you know, yeah. it does help our budgets and we can grow and that certainly does help. So we can't
1: got to acknowledge that, but, um, I forget yeah. where we started this whole conversation. So oh. the, the NRC, <laughs> The NRC for beef, like, which is always the Bible of us nutritionists. And then the ASL 1182 alternative feed resources. I like that. Those are two kind of complementary beef resources. Question number two, what is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading?
0: So when I have to hop on an airplane and fly someplace, I usually go to the bookstore in the airport and pick up a Jack Reacher book. And there's usually a new Lee Childs edition that comes out. Uh, that I can usually get read by the time I'm there and by the time I'm home. Some nights get pretty long when I get home because I got to finish it before I go back to work.
1: <laughs> oh, that's such a compliment to an author, right? When you're like, I had to keep reading even though it was 2 a.m.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I got to finish. That, that... <laughs>
1: oh, excellent. Have you watched any of the adaptations of Reacher on like Amazon Prime or any of those? They've had a couple of TV series recently.
0: No, I have. I, I don't have. I got about every other streaming service, but I don't have Amazon Prime. But, of course, the uh, uh, Tom Cruise, Jack Reacher uh, movies, yeah, they, the the books are even better.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed.
0: But the books are better.
1: The original's always, the, book, the book's always the best. <laughs> All right, last question. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful?
0: The trait that I bring up is disciplined. They just have to be disciplined in what they do and where they go. They just can't flounder here and flounder there. They need to have a goal that they're working to and and work for it. One thing that I got to share, I find it interesting when I'm working out in the the public and you run across some people that are real leaders, you're going, wow, there's some depth to this person. What's going on here? And as you find out, you're going, wow, they've got an advanced degree. A lot of them have PhDs that you'd never know. They're just articulate, outgoing, aggressive people that are, are are moving, but should never know the academic background they have behind them because they don't share it. They don't need to share it. That's just who they are as part of their training. And it does show up in industry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Discipline. I like that. And I, you know, that's such a, uh, I tell students, you know, when I come home at the end of the day, you know, you feed the dog, you feed the cows, and then you feed yourself, right? It's always that order or some 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 order, but we're always the last ones, right? And if it's, a really crappy day. It could be a long night, or if there's a calf coming or something like that. But we have to have a some degree of discipline, right, here in the beef industry.
0: Well, and if you're going to focus on an objective or a goal, you have to be disciplined to work at it. You just can't just, oh, I'll play with it today and maybe a little bit next week. No, you have to work at it, and you know, don't don't get interrupted by what you're getting involved with, but be disciplined and work on that and have a focus and move forward. And Hopefully, it's successful for you. And then, if it isn't successful, you got to learn from things that didn't work out and move forward. And hopefully, you're a better person because of it. I truly do believe in those words.
1: Absolutely. It's not a mistake if you didn't, if if you learned from it the first time, it doesn't fall in the definition of mistake. It's only if you do it the second and third time that you're like, why didn't you learn from that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you know, raising cattle isn't always profitable. (laughs) 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 You can learn from it, right? Well, we keep raising because, and I and I justify it this way, we're raising food for people. Sometimes that's our contribution to society, even if it does come at a cost. Yeah. That's our yeah. charity.
1: I think that's a, a great way to think about it.
0: So I look at it this way and say, so how many quarter pounders of beef do I raise a year? I mean, by having calves, we end up feeding a lot of people. So I look at the amount of beef that I produce off of my farm Um, that feeds, that's a lot of quarter pounders. Absolutely. And when you don't get paid, and when you end the year at a loss rather than a profit just because of drought or death loss due to blizzards, um, that's all part of it. And maybe someday you can leave something to somebody that because it's inflated in value, but you know, uh, farming and that type of thing isn't easy. And that's why we don't see a lot of new people entering into farming because it's not just an easy way to make money, um, but it is a good life. And you are taking care of animals and you are providing nutritious food for people. So it's not a bad calling. You've, you've provided things for the world and your community.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the same way you've talked about making an impact in North Dakota by having a long-term career there, the beef individuals contributing to sustainable beef production are making impact on global food security. I think that's a great way to end the show here.
0: I, I just got to follow up with that and say... um, If you go to other nations, they don't have extension services. And their ability to produce food for their people is limited. You don't realize how an an organized academic environment of research, teaching, extension work helps ensure food for our population. And a hungry population is a rebellious population. So having food available is weak. I never thought that what we do for work and providing food security is what it is, but that's really what we do. Food security is a huge issue. And our thankfully our legislatures realize that in Congress.
1: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Hoppe, it's been awesome to talk to you today.